it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Four students were found murdered. I mean, just a really grisly murder. And for about six weeks, there really weren't much in the way of leads. But they got really lucky that they found a knife sheath. There was a small speck of DNA. And wouldn't you know, there's a guy named Brian Koberger who's doing his PhD at nearby Washington State University. They see him doing some really crazy things. They see him taking the trash out at 1 a.m. They see him scrubbing his white Elantra nonstop. I'll bet he just thought he got away with it. Like when he was disposing of all of these things, like I'm sure he was worried, but I'm sure initially over the first week or so, he thought, I'm good. He definitely probably thought he had gotten away with it for a while. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am here with Connor Powell, and he is a journalist and a podcast producer, and we're going to be talking about some of his podcasts and a little bit about um, his experience as a journalist. Maybe we'll get into all of it. I'm not sure. We'll see how it goes. Check out the uh, the interview. The podcast that you're producing right now, um, what, and what is, what is that one about? It's the Idaho Massacre. It's on right. iHeart. Um, it's about Brian Koberger and the investigation into the deaths of the four college students in Moscow, Idaho. It took place, uh, obviously, those grisly murders took place about a year ago uh, now, and Koberger was arrested, I, I guess, about 10 months ago now, um, last December. Um, and so the Idaho massacre basically is the story of the investigation, the story of the, the people who were brutally killed, um, the story into how Koberger was identified, how he was arrested, um, and then sort of what do we know now after his arrest, which, you know, I think that's sort of the most interesting thing part about the, the, the podcast and also the investigation, which is that there was a flurry of information around his arrest. And then it's really just gone quiet the last uh, couple months. Right. When, when is he supposed to be, or is he going to trial? I mean, he's, he is going to trial, right? Is he? He is going to trial. You know, that, that's been one of the interesting things is uh, Idaho was trying to get the trial uh, started by the beginning of October. So literally, he was supposed to go to trial in the next couple of weeks. Um, and both his lawyer and Koberger and the, uh, the uh, prosecution seemed like, Full on, let's get it done. Let's get it started. Let's get going. Uh, the last couple of weeks, there's been serious indications that that just wasn't going to happen. And they've now postponed the start of the trial. Um, it's a little bit up in the air when it's going to start. And, and, and part of the reason is there's some significant questions about the DNA that is used to link Koberger to the crime. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this uh, case. And we go into it in depth in the Idaho massacre, which is that you know, for the most part, DNA is DNA, right? You know, uh, a, a criminal leaves his DNA at the crime scene and uh, the police gather up the DNA. Usually they run it through one of the many databases, they get a hit, or if they have a suspect, they can basically take DNA from the suspect, match it to the DNA that was left at the crime scene. You've got a direct match. Right. That's not what happened with Brian Koberg. I think that's part of the thing that is so interesting, but it's also one of the main reasons why there's a delay in his trial. So they did something different, which is well, they 
can we, I'm sorry, I, I hate to do this, but can we go back and talk about the actual crime to begin sure. with like that, you yeah. know, that way it's, it kind of falls yep. in place. Yep. yep. Um, so he was, he was like, I mean, he, he actually was a, uh, what a teacher's assistant at the school at the university. So Brian Koberger was um, a graduate student at a nearby school. This all took place at the University of Idaho, where four students um, of different ages, but pretty much all upperclassmen living off campus at the University of Idaho. Um, Brian Koberger was across the border in, at Washington State University as a graduate student. He was doing his PhD in criminology. He had already had a master's in criminology. He was very well thought of, of his, um, by his academic program. And he got into this PhD program in uh, in Washington State University, which is just right across the border from where the University of Idaho is. And essentially what happened was in November, um, it was a Saturday night, Sunday morning, four students living in an off-campus house at the University of Idaho were found murdered. I mean, just a really grisly murder. Um, they were stabbed. They were sliced by a knife. The blood was such that there are pictures of blood dripping through the foundation of the house. Um, that's how much blood had been spilled inside um, this off-campus house. There are also two roommates who survived the night. They were not attacked, but they were also in the house um, during the attacks. And for about six weeks, four to five, six weeks, there really weren't much in the way of leads. The only thing uh, investigators in Idaho had was essentially a car that had been seen driving around the area, picked up on people's doorbell cams, some security footage of a white Hyundai Elantra. Um, but that didn't tie anyone. I mean, it was, it was a pretty common car. It's a four-door sedan. And police really didn't have much in the way of leads. There was no stalker to, you know, they looked into whether or not there was a stalker for any of the three girls um, there was nothing that came up. They looked to see if there was anybody who had sort of been bothering them, harassing them, uh, an ex-boyfriend, um, you know, all of those sort of traditional suspects, police were investigating and they didn't come up with anything, but they had this white Hyundai Elantra, but they got really lucky that they found a knife sheath inside the crime scene. Right. And on that knife sheath, there was a small speck of, uh, DNA. And if you look at a knife sheath, it was a K-bar marine style knife and it had a button clasp. And just on the inside of the button, there was a small amount of DNA. So you could see somebody probably closed it or were, was funneling at some point and they left it there. Uh, the knife was not there. There was no other DNA. There was blood everywhere. And so for about four to five weeks, you know, the, the whole community in that region was really concerned. Uh, you know, who killed these four you know, they look like sort of poster child, poster children for Amber Crombie and Fitch, um, you know, right. models. They're young students. They're one of them had already graduated and was about to go off uh, to her first job in uh, Austin. She was just literally visiting that weekend. You and, know, and, and it was and, and someone and, and they, this was not like you said, there's just nobody that they knew like they knew. Then they kind of knew that somebody came to this house, got into the house, attacked them like it like that's a that's a super scary thing because the one place when you're in your house, you just feel safe. So exactly. And I mean, th this is a off campus house right by fraternity row. And three of the girls were in sororities. One of the boy that was killed, Ethan Chapin, he was also in a fraternity. This was a house of upper class and where people were constantly always going. So, you know, it's unlikely they locked the doors. It's a small town. Uh, it's in Idaho. It's a college campus area. 
you know, you've got kids coming and going. Um, and so like people feel safe there, felt really safe there. Once the murders happen, I mean, the, the town goes into lockdown, half the students leave from the campus. I mean, people are terrified because they don't have any leads. Police aren't very forth, forthcoming on the information they have. And so for the rest of November and early December, uh, the University of Idaho is really, you know, I mean, it's it's a terrifying place. We talked to people who were going there as journalists or who live there. And like, you know, people were taking their exams from home and stuff like that. So fast forward, their police have this small speck of DNA. They run it through the different databases and nothing comes up, which is pretty unusual for if you think of a, a quadruple homicide, like those people don't normally, whoever kills four people with a knife, there's usually a criminal record, right? Yeah, they've been in trouble before. They didn't just up and decide to do this. Although yeah. In this case. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, these databases produce nothing. Um, but if you remember a couple of years ago, they solved the Golden Gate Killer um, by using something called uh, genetic uh, DNA, genetic genealogy. Right which is essentially, you know, if you've used 23andMe or some of these ancestry DNA type public databases, you take a swab in your mouth, you upload it, um, and then you find out who all your cousins are. Um, and what they did in the Golden State Killer was they basically did that. They put it in public databases, and then they were able to find cousins, third cousins, second cousins of the killer from the DNA that they had from, you know, 30 years ago. And they slowly and painstakingly put together a profile of who that killer was from the seventies and eighties. Well, they did right. the same thing with link, link, started linking, linking, yep. link, right. Until they right. got to. Right. And then they checked it. The police uh, for the golden state killer, they checked it against other possible suspects, you know, or any of these are their DNA and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's a unique way to find a suspect, but it's, it's the not, it's not a traditional way, right? It's not like cheek swab from the suspect, criminal uh, DNA evidence left at the scene. You got a perfect match. And Ancestry DNA and uh, 23andMe, they don't allow this type of search, but there are other private public databases that are not criminals, but there are other databases used for other things. And so a company basically worked with the FBI and investigators in Idaho, and they did the same thing, which is they took the DNA sample from the crime scene, from that knife sheath, and they uploaded it. And all of a sudden, they got hundreds of cousins, hundreds of second cousins, third cousins, and, you know, they they eliminated some based on age. They eliminated some based on location. And all of a sudden, after a couple of days of looking at the potential list, they find out that there's two lists. There's the list of white Elantra owners in the region. And then there's the list of DNA suspects. And wouldn't you know, there's a guy named Brian Koberger who's doing his PhD at nearby Washington State University, which is only about a 25-minute drive from where the murders happen who owns a white Hyundai Elantra and he is a cousin of the killer. So police zero in on him. And at this point, school's getting out. Um, you know, everyone's going home for the holidays and police. Um, he's now like the main suspect, but they're, they're sort of not able to track him at all times. He drives home with his father from Pullman, Washington, to Eastern Pennsylvania where he lives, where his parents live. And he gets pulled over twice on that drive. Um, and there's confusion about whether or not the FBI was tracking him or whether or not they were just random pullovers. But um, he gets pulled over twice. There's video from the cop cam yeah. of him getting pulled over with his father. And um, by the time he gets home to Eastern 
Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania police are on him. They're watching his house. And um, over the course of about four or five days before he's arrested, they see him doing some really crazy things. They see him taking the trash out at 1 a.m. They see him scrubbing his white Elantra nonstop. Um, And they see him taking small little bags and putting it into his neighbor's trash. So all of a sudden, there's like alarm bells going off within law enforcement, right? And he's ultimately arrested. And he claims innocence. I, you know, I, I had nothing to do with, uh, do with this. You know, I want to be, I'm going to be fully exonerated, but he's arrested and he's found in a sh- his shorts, t-shirt, and he's literally putting trash in the plastic bags at 1 a.m. when he's arrested in the middle of the night. And, um, but the issue though, in terms of going back to the trial, right. Is how did police zero in on him? How many people did they exclude as part of that DNA process? Um, and that's essentially what the defense is arguing and what is before the judge, which is slowing down the, uh, trial that he's supposed to have was supposed to start on October, I think, 2nd. Um, essentially, the defense is saying, well, we want all that information about all those other suspects who had DNA that linked to him. Um, and so that trial was supposed to start um, uh, in early October. It's now being delayed. Now, when he was arrested, they were also able to get a cheek swab. And it's a direct match to the DNA that was left at the crime scene. But the defense doesn't really have a lot of good options. So, you know, what do you do? You challenge everything you can. They're challenging the evidence. And they're essentially saying, like, forget about the direct match DNA. Let's talk about the genetic genealogy in the process because it's really never been used in a prosecution before. It was used in the Golden Gate serial uh, killer, but never in an active. uh, That's a cold case. This was an active um, uh, investigation. So the defense is really desperately trying to get all of that DNA excluded. Um, and that's part of what they're dealing with right now. The other thing they're dealing with that's delaying the trial is there's a huge amount of media attention on this trial, right? And both the prosecution and the defense do not want there to be cameras in the courtroom. Um, but the media obviously wants it. Um, and it appears the judge is leaning towards it, but he's yet to make a ruling. Um, so there's been several hearings about whether or not there should be any cameras, uh, in the courtroom, um, for the actual trial. There's been cameras in the courtroom for all the hearings. Um, but the prosecution and the defense don't want it. I wonder why. Well, the the defense is saying essentially that all of the focus on Brian Koberger's face and and people going on TV and talking about, do you see his eyes or do you see the way he carries himself? That's essentially tainting the jury pool. Um, The prosecution, it's not 100 percent clear, although, you know, I think they don't want anything that could essentially disrupt the trial or hurt the trial. Um, But they've had cameras in for all of the hearings, for all of his appearances before the court pretrial hearings, uh, arraignment. He's been, you know, he's been videographed or um, uh, he's had his photo taken, uh, video taken and stuff like that. So at this point, it's kind of, I don't say it's mute, but um, it it probably isn't going to make as big a deal as they think. Because once the trial starts, the jury's already been selected. It's probably more important now for jury selection, ahead of the jury selection, I guess. Um, But once the jury starts, uh, you know, is in the booth, uh, is in the trial and the trial starts, 
it probably isn't going to make a huge deal, but the defense and the prosecution right now are both essentially saying we don't want cameras in there. Yeah, I was going to say, even if you exclude all of that, even if you're the if you're a the defense, you know, or the prosecution, the truth is, is that there's no winning for you. Like if you lose or win, your every move is going to be torn apart. So even if I said, look, I don't really care how the how you know, how it's going to affect the trial. My concern is I have to live my life after the trial and everything I've done throughout this case is going to be picked apart. Well, they should have done this or they should have done that or they like, and having that on camera makes it so much worse for you. You know? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's the, that's the OJ effect, right? Um, uh, and that's a Jody Arias. I think it was a similar one where, you know, you had a huge amount of interest. Court TV is carrying it live. You can only see it today. I mean, you can imagine how many TikTok channels will carry it. Uh, Twitch, you know, it, it will be carried lots of places, I'm sure. It'll probably be carried on most of the cable networks. And, you know, um, if you just look at how much media has been following this case from the very start, again, you have four young, attractive um, college students brutally murdered in their what should be a safe home, as you pointed out. Um, and you have this. I don't want to say fascinating because I don't think that's the right word, but you have this individual who appeared to be on the path to helping solve crimes as a criminologist, and yet he's accused of one of the most horrific crimes we, you know, have seen in this country in a long time. Well, and and he he's not like it's it's a he's an odd he's an odd suspect because yeah. it's not like he had a he's had like you said you know dozens of run run ins he's had. You know, he's had a super troubled past or, well, I think he had, didn't he have kind of a little bit of a troubled past, right? But not So like- he did. And, and, and the question is, is how much of it is a troubled past and how much of it is, you know, he had an incident when he was in high school. And, you know, I think that we'll find out more. But this is one of the things we go into in the podcast and we actually talk to one of his um, school counselors, I think, from high school. But Brian Koberger was enrolled in a specialty program. That was for kids who wanted to become law enforcement or military. And so it was a specialty program. And after a few months, he has an issue at this school in in Pennsylvania where he lives. And he gets suspended and then thrown out from uh, this specialty program. And he ends up finishing uh, high school essentially online. Um, He also was. Do you know what the issue was? No. And we interviewed a woman who, um, who does know, and, and she said, you know, for security, you know, personal reasons, like you can't say what the issue was. And, and all she was able to tell us was essentially that it involved complaints from female students, okay. uh, from young women who were enrolled at the school as well. Um, and that's kind of all we know. And, and, and that's kind of been talked about that there was an incident, what he do, it's not really clear. And, and, you know, there were no charges brought. He wasn't arrested or anything like that. We don't know if it was anything physical. We don't know if it was um, a behavioral. Like, we just don't know. And so the question is, is like, did he, is that an incident? Is it a precursor to being a murderer? Or was it just an unfortunate incident? We yeah. just, we don't know. Yeah. Um, He's just a high school kid that's a boy that said the wrong thing to the wrong person. Who knows? But, right. you know, was it, who knows? But, you know, people say and do stupid things and when they're, teenagers so that doesn't necessarily mean that they went out and they're going to start murdering people right the other thing that was sort of unique about his childhood that we um we go into depth as well is um when he was younger he was considered overweight he was um teased a lot bullied according to friends for his weight 
And then um, around this high school period of time, and it doesn't overlap perfectly with the incident, but around that period of time, he he loses a ton of weight. He right. starts boxing. He gets in very good physical shape. But friends also say he's doing heroin and he's doing drugs. So he has yeah. this like really unique um, physical transformation that is exercise. I mean, he's, he was boxing. He's you know he's running. He's also doing heroin with multiple people. Um, and he has a condition, according to himself uh, and friends, called visual snow, which is essentially his his eyes and his brain are sort of always fuzzy and hazing. Um, now, we haven't had a doctor actually say that he was ever diagnosed with that, but he wrote about it. He told his friends. He had a blog when he was like 15, 16, 17 years old where he talked about that. He was suicidal. He talked about hearing voices in his head. Um, and, and the picture that's painted from the blog that he had when he was uh, in high school is of a kid who's got some serious mental issues. Um, at the same time, people who knew him said Brian Koberger was friendly. He was um, quiet. He was shy, um, but he could also uh, engage with people as well. And so you, you, you see this sort of picture painted from a lot of different angles, um, but none of them really scream future, you know, serial killer or anything like that. Yeah. It's um, not like he's killing kittens or something, you know, exactly. So. I mean, that, that's exactly the first thing I thought of was because like, when you hear about kids killing cats or dogs or dissecting things in the yard, like people immediately think, Oh, that kid's got, you know, yeah. there's just trouble ahead. Right. Right. Um, and at some point he goes to rehab, he gets a degree, um, an undergraduate degree in criminology. He gets a master's in criminology and then he gets a full ride to WSU, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, um, as uh, for his PhD in criminology. So by all accounts, like he seems to have turned his right life around. He talked about like wanting to help solve crimes, especially in rural uh, communities where, you know, there isn't a large police presence and stuff. Um, and so whatever issues he might have had in high school, it seems to have flipped Um but then there's also like other troubling things where there's reports that, you know, he's kind of creepy in bars and restaurants and he doesn't have a lot of friends in college. And he's uh, he talks down to people a lot. He's um, he's overly confident and he shuts people down. Um, you know, other classmates of his from college, whether it's from undergraduate, from his graduate degrees, describe a guy that like is sort of quick to snap at people, quick to put people in their place, you know, a very sort of. I'm tough. I know what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, don't challenge me because I'm smarter than you. Um, again, does that scream serial killer? Does that scream future killer? Like, not necessarily, but they're all pieces of the background of his his personality. Um, and, you know, when, when the police were first looking into the murders, um, he wasn't on any, anyone's list. Like, he was he was a nobody. He was just a criminology student at another neighboring um, school, you know, 10, 25, 30 miles away. Um, they were looking at ex-boyfriends. They were looking at potential stalkers, that type of thing. Um, the usual so when, suspects. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and so when Koberg is arrested, it, it really is sort of a shock to, okay, how did we get here? Um, you know, and I think one of the things we try to do with the Idaho uh, massacre is not just focus on Brian Koberger because the four people who lost their lives, um, you know, they're innocent victims. Um, but we did talk to one 
criminal analyst who talked about the intimacy of murder, right? The intimacy of stabbing. Um, but Joseph Morgan, who's the criminologist that we talked to, you know, talked about the intimacy was one direction. It was all from Brian Koberger's direction. He knew right. them. He stalked them. Um, the the four victims, they didn't know anything about him. There's no con- he, there's no evidence that they had a connection to him. Um, they weren't DMing with him, as far as we know. Uh, you know the the family of the victims say that you know they they didn't have anything to do with Brian Koberger. So that intimacy, uh, according to the criminologist we talked to, Joseph Scott Morgan, like it goes one way. Um, well, how did he, assuming it's him, which I'm right. making my assumption, um, how did he get to them? Like, how did he, I mean, did he, you know, he, there was a connection where he kind of knew or who one of the girls was or something. Wasn't there something like that? Or That's kind of thinking? the um, still unanswered question. And that's one of those things that like, it probably will come out during a trial, which is like, how did he select them? Um, there have been snippets of information. There are reports that he followed at least two of the victims on social media. There's also reports that he reached out to them over instant messenger and things like that, or direct yeah. message. Uh, the, that wasn't in the police affidavit. It wasn't in the charging documents. The prosecutor has never addressed that. Um, so maybe it's not true. We just don't know. Now, presumably in this day and age, what's the most likely way a guy stalks a couple attractive women when they're not at the same school, they don't yeah. know each other. There's no overlapping it. Probably social media. Yeah. Um, but again, like we just don't know that. And the prosecution hasn't, um, hasn't really brought that information out. What about the fact that his phone had been, you know, that they tracked his phone actually like in the area yeah. while the Elantra was there, but the night of the actual murders, his phone was placed on, um, airplane mode. And like that, that's, that's what I heard. I'm assuming that's also. Yeah. And that's, um, that's in the police affidavit and the charging documents, which is that, uh, on the night of the murders. So basically the murders happen around four o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning. So, um, the four kids, which is Madison Mogan, um, Kaylee Gonzalez, uh, Zaina Cranoodle and Ethan Chapin, uh, they're all out having fun nights, Saturday night in a college town. Um, and they all come home at different hours, but they're all home roughly by sort of about, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Um, it appears they're hanging out, they're eating food. There's even a DoorDash delivery about 4 a.m. in the morning, um, right before the murders. And um, at that exact moment, there's video of Koberger's white Elantra leaving his apartment complex at Washington State University. But his phone's not traveling because his phone's on um, airplane mode. So his phone is disconnected, I, th- I think, from the Wi-Fi or the, whatever the most recent closest um, cell phone tower at his apartment is. And then it isn't seen on again for about three hours. Um, and there is video of a white Elantra driving around the neighborhood where the murders happen. Um, he drives a white Elantra. He was in his car. The... In, in Idaho, you have to, um, as part of the pretrial hearings, you have to basically say whether or not you're going to use um, an alibi as part of your defense. And so you have to file that alibi. And so a couple of weeks ago, the um, Koberger's defense 
filed an alibi basically saying that he was out driving around in the middle of the night. Um, and that's it. They didn't say that's anything more. They didn't say where he drove to. That doesn't um, help. <laughs> no, no. I they already that, knew that. It's a particularly good alibi, but um, that was their alibi defense. Uh, they didn't say they would use that alibi, but you have to file in Idaho a potential alibi if you're going to introduce it during trial. Um, and, and essentially what they filed was, you know, it was like a one page, one and a half page document saying, yes, our client was out driving around that night. No, he was not anywhere near the murders. You know, he had nothing to do with it. But we can't tell you where all he went because he often has trouble sleeping, I think they they mentioned. And so he just drives around in the middle of the night. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of Koberger's defense so far and then to challenge the DNA. But um, we don't know how he's connected to the victims. Uh, we don't know uh, if he had ever met them. We don't know if he just followed them. There is um, some cell phone evidence that he was potentially in the area because his cell phone pinged off of towers in the area of the houses uh, of the house that where the murder was committed. Pri- but prior to the night of the yeah, actual murder, right? Um, but that's that's probably the least um, concrete evidence because I mean, as you as you probably know and have talked about, like how a cell phone pings off of a tower mm-hmm. um, is not an exact location. I mean, you right. can get an exact location, but generally um, they're pinging off the closest towers, which in a place like Idaho could be 20 miles away. Um, and it's not always triangulating the spot, right? Um, so just because he's in that area in the weeks leading up to uh, the murders doesn't really mean anything. Also, um, the way Pullman, Washington is as a college town con- compared to um, the University of Idaho is a college town. University of Idaho has, I think, like slightly larger stores. I think there's a Sam's Club there and a Costco uh, and so a nicer Target, whereas like Pullman, Washington has some smaller stores and restaurants. So it's possible people go back and forth. I mean, that's not like a crazy thing to suggest, but the night of... He is driving around somewhere in that area. Um, when I say area, I mean like southeastern Washington, possibly southwestern Idaho, because they're sort of the same area. Um, at some point around, I think it's around 6 a.m., his phone does actually ping and is, t- is turned back on. Um, and then later in the morning, he goes to a grocery store and is seen buying all sorts of material from a local uh, local grocery store. Uh, what he bought, we don't know, but it wasn't considered groceries. It's like uh, gloves or plastic bags and stuff like that. Again, more stuff that is sort of circumstantial, but suspicious. You start adding all those circumstantial, you know, um, bits of evidence together and it, it becomes, you know, overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we talked to a couple different lawyers about how they would, how you would go about defending Brian Koberger in this case. And right. you know, the, the last couple episodes of uh, the Idaho massacre, like we go into this because if you're a defense attorney, you know, you've got facts and then you've got to sort of create speculation. Um, they don't have to prove that somebody else did the murder, but they do have to prove that there's reasonable doubt that somebody else did. Um, and so they're attacking the evidence wherever they can. And, and this is the thing that's really interesting is that 
with the DNA, you know, we all sort of accept at this point that if there's DNA at the crime scene and there's DNA um, taken from the suspect and they match, that person was there, right? Right. Uh, but, but this isn't exactly a match. This isn't his. They're not. They're not saying this is his DNA. They're saying so no, no. There's they a are later. They are later in the filing because once he's arrested, they do a cheek swab and then they can tie it. There is a direct match. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. But the Sorry. defense is essentially saying how they got to the arrest, there isn't a direct match. Um, so they're trying to argue that the process to get to the direct match is should exclude should is yeah. exclude his right. And and in fairness, um, the, the courts have never ruled on this because the courts just have not seen a case of um, a, a genealogy being used to narrow the suspect pool down like this. Right. Um, it, it's possible that a judge might say, I'm not so sure about this process. You know, I think we should exclude this. Um, and that could invalidate everything. Now, there's, as we talked about, there's a lot of other circumstantial evidence pointing the finger at Brian Koberger. He drives a white Elantra. Um, he's a criminologist. Maybe there's DMs, maybe there's not um, in terms of the connection. Did he order this knife online um, at some point? Like These are all things we don't know. Yeah, but the DNA, if the, the DNA is a smoking gun and all the other stuff just makes it overwhelming, right. you get rid of the DNA and then they've actually got a chance of, of getting an acquittal. You know, Right. Now, the interesting thing about the DNA is you would think in a gruesome murder with a knife where there's four victims – two floor house and one person walking through the house that there'd be other DNA. Yeah. Hair, maybe sweat. The only thing that was found was this little piece of DNA on the inside of a snap on a knife sheath. And so again, you can see the defense saying, Oh yeah, he, he, um, he looked at knives in a local Walmart one time, but like, that's, that's not his DNA. Uh, I mean, it's his DNA, but like, that he didn't order that knife or that's not his knife. He wasn't in the scene there, you know, if he was there, there'd be way more DNA evidence. And so far the prosecution has only been able to file this one little piece of DNA. Hmm. When do, Oh, they, I guess obviously they don't, they don't really tell you when, but I mean, what are the defense attorneys that you spoke with? When do they think that the court will rule on, uh, whether or not they're going to exclude the the DNA. Yeah, just to be clear, I never spoke to Koberger's defense attorneys. These are outside defense attorneys yeah. that we spoke to. Um, you know, who've uh, you know defended clients like this. Um, you know, they're all a little bit puzzled by the process as well um, because we thought we had a hearing in August. Um, the other thing that's kind of tricky is the prosecution has said they've turned over all of the files that they have on DNA and the investigation to the defense, but there was nothing in there from the FBI and the outside um, laboratory who conducted this genealogy DNA search, basically. So the prosecution is saying, we've turned over everything we have, but we didn't do this. This was the FBI. Um, it was an outside lab. We don't have this documentation. We don't, there's nothing we can turn over. And the defense is saying, well, hold on, like, slow down. Like, just because you don't have it doesn't mean you can't not turn it over. Like, you better go get it from the FBI. You better get it from this outside laboratory because this is a key part of how they identified Brian Koberger as their main suspect. And right. as a defense attorney, you know, 
the defense has rights. They have to have all the evidence. And so that DNA has, or sorry, that documentation has not been handed over yet. And it's not clear if the judge is waiting to rule on the admissibility of the DNA until the documentation is turned over or if he's just not, hasn't made up his mind. But the defense is saying, we are entitled to all of this documentation. Uh, we need this now. Uh, we needed it you know, earlier this summer because we can't mount a defense if we don't know how they got to Brian Koberger. We need to see this. Which is, you know, I mean, you probably talk to a lot of uh, people, you know, dealing with criminal cases and like one of the bedrock foundations of criminal cases is like the defense gets everything. They, they get yeah, all. Yeah, I, I don't know why they would even play game. I mean, th- not that they don't, they play games all the time. So, I mean, right. that's like very common, but I mean, it's such a high profile case where everybody's going to be looking over it. Like why, why, why even, why even do that? Like what, you know, you, you received something from the FBI. Right. You need to hand that over like, oh, well, that came from them. It doesn't matter. You used it to help further your investigation. You have to right. give it to us, period. And there's, I mean, if you if you really go down the rabbit hole, there are people who are speculating like that the Idaho investigators handed the DNA over to the FBI, who then handed it over to this outside lab. And it was no, the DNA was no longer in the laboratories in Idaho. Is my understanding that's not actually what happened? I think this is a really important point. Like when you do a DNA sequence, you essentially get the data, right? Um, you don't have to hand over the the slide um, uh, that has the DNA. But they hand over the sequence. That sequence gets uploaded to a database, and that's how it gets matched. Um, but there, but there is there are people who are even speculating. Defense attorneys, they're like, we don't know if they handed over the actual DNA um, or if they just handed over the DNA data sequence right um and so one of the defense attorneys we we talked to simply said like until we know what was handed over when it was handed over who who took it like the chain of custody is even a question there um and these are all questions that the prosecution has been unable or unwilling to answer and on on the face of it it does feel like they're playing games on on the other hand it also feels like a small community prosecutor's office, probably when they were told oh, the FBI is going to handle this, they were like, fantastic. Just let us know. Um, Cause this is a really small community in, um, you know, Idaho, which isn't the most robust criminal justice system in the country anyways. Yeah. Well, and there's not a lot of, they're not used to dealing with these types of crimes like this. Exactly. Exactly. So their wheelhouse, you know, we could have a, um, a decision by the judge today. We could have it tomorrow. It could also be in three months. Like we just don't know when the judge is going to decide on this DNA evidence. We also don't know has the prosecution handed over this information because we don't know if they've gotten it from the FBI and we don't know if the FBI, like it seems weird that the FBI would be playing games because this does it. Well, on <laughs> the mean- science part, this is this is one of the things the FBI prides itself, right? Like we are a scientific based organization. Like we have all these processes in, in place. This is a new technology. They they're very um, proud to show this off, but it's kind of like peer research on in the science world, right? Like you got to show the evidence, you got to show the data, and let people pour over it, have a look at it. And so far, that's just not happened. Right. It'll be, <laughs> yeah. it'll be, I was going it, to, you know, it's too bad. Like there's no, there's no real like resolution to, you know, it's, it's anticlimactic at this point because you just don't know. But, um, it'll be interesting to see the, 
watch the how the whole thing plays out. One, it just adds to the you, you already have a horrific murder. You have an interest, interesting suspect. And now you've got a new layer of this case, which is this um, DNA, uh, DNA genetic genealogy aspect that is pretty, you know, um, remarkable. I mean, it's new. It hasn't been tested in the courts. Um, and so you understand why there's such a huge media interest in this story um, because it ticks every box. And I think this is one of the reasons that, like, there's such an interest to have this televised is people are going to be glued to this one that actually happens. It may not yeah. happen for two years, but people are going to be glued. Well, and then it's like, I, I was wonder, you know, you've got kind of like Ted Bundy where it's, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's innocent. He's in it. He's always saying he's innocent. And, and then after he's been found guilty multiple times and realizes then he, then he kind of starts to, you know, explain, you know, kind of, kind of admit to the whole, here's kind of what I would have done. Here's how it would have happened. You know, he kind of does that right. third party bullshit, you know, a little explanation, but he basically, it's, it's like you, you're done. It's over. So, and then you've got other people who just, you know, for the next 45 years sit in prison saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Right. I didn't do it. So, which always sucks right. because, you know, having been in prison, like, I, I mean, hope is what gets you through it. You keep thinking you're going to, something's going to happen and they're going to let you out any day now. Like you're going to win this. You're going to get this. So that's that hope. But oh man, you know, this. Well, and this is something I didn't even mention. Um, when Brian Koberger was doing his master's at LaSalle University in criminology, one of his professors is Catherine. Um, and I'm forgetting her last name, but she is the one who wrote the book. She's one of the most prolific career uh, criminologists in terms of writing books, but she's a specialist in the BTK killer. Um, right. And, you know, her textbooks are used in every criminology. Her, her research in the serial killers uh, is used in every criminology department. And Brian Koberger had her as a professor. Right. Um, and so it's not, it, there's no, she's gone quiet. Like she's not talking because she knew him. Um, you know, he was not only an undergraduate at LaSalle, but he was a graduate student at LaSalle. And they, that's one of the better criminology programs in the country. Um, and so there's also this, I, I don't want to say tie or connection, because I think that probably is stretching a little bit too far based on what we know. Um, but there is also this, um, this link between Brian Koberger and some of the people who are doing the most cutting edge research into criminology and, and serial killers in this country. You know, one, I'm sure you already know this, like proving a murder is probably one of the hardest things to do, obviously, you know, yeah. but I'll it, listen, let, I, I'm, I'll bet he just thought he got away with it. I'll bet he felt really good. Although he, he had to know when the investigation, like, I think when I, I was reading up about this, like when he was disposing of all of these things, like there had been something in the news about his car. And so he was just there was something where they, they had something and that's like, he starts getting rid of all these things. He starts. So at that point he might've, I'm sure he was worried, but I'm sure initially over the first week or so he thought. Yeah. I mean, he was seen um, disposing and he really did clean out his apartment in the days after he, I mean, when, when they finally searched his apartment, it was like described as like a monk's apartment. Like there's just nothing in there. Right. Um, and it had been thoroughly cleaned. Um, now, one of the interesting things was his license plate, because he had come from Pennsylvania, um, his, his license plate was actually a Pennsylvania license plate. 
So at first, he wasn't even on all of the um, white Elantra lists. It was only as they did an expanded list and um, somebody from the universe or uh, Washington State University added his car, which was registered there, that they added his car um, in Pennsylvania plates to the list. Um, so like, yeah, you could see he definitely probably thought he had gotten away with it for a while. Um, there's some speculation that the drive home where he was stopped twice by state police in Indiana really spooked him. Um, because that is when, when he's driving home at, for Christmas with his dad, he gets stopped twice. Um, Indiana state police say that they were just random drug checks on a, on a road. Now that still seems crazy that that happens once, let alone twice, um, within a short period of time. But that experience, um, according to sort of the people we talked to, when he got home, that's when he starts cleaning his car furiously again. That's when he starts like wearing gloves everywhere um, and cleaning, taking out the trash in small plastic bags, putting it in his neighbors. Um, that was all stuff that he wasn't seen doing at his home apartment in Washington after the murders, but he was seen doing it at his parents' house right before he gets arrested and following those two traffic stops. He probably definitely felt pain. I was going to say he probably felt pretty panicked too when he, when he couldn't find the, um, you know, the sheath for the, for the knife, like that yeah. must've, one of the victims was laying on it. Right. So he just, he, he just lost it. He must've, but you know, he also probably wanted to get out of the house as quick as possible. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, we speculate on this and, and this is just an educated guess, but um, you can see somebody who's going to use a knife. Um, they're driving to the murder scene if you've ever worn a knife on your belt loop, it's really not that comfortable for a long drive. Like it actually presses up against your side. So you can see whoever, let's pretend it's not Brian Koberger for a second. Whoever was driving to the scene probably carried the knife in the knife sheath, put it on the right. car seat next to them with whatever else they're bringing because it's really not comfortable to wear it on their belt loop. Um, so when he got to the site of the murder, um, you know, to the house on King Road, he probably forgot to take his belt off, put it through the loop. And so that when he actually takes the knife out for the first time to kill somebody, he sets the knife sheet down. Yeah. His adrenaline had to be going nuts. Um, um, yeah, I just, I, well, you know, it, it, it is super odd that like he must've been completely wrapped up and there's no way you don't lose your hair. I mean, even your body here, even your, just the hair on your, like, yeah. and you know, they went through that crime scene. Yeah with a fine tooth comb two or three times looking for something. Yep. So, I mean, even, you know, hair falls out constantly. If there's a struggle, if they're, you know, body hair falls out, right. like I'm right. sure they, they went through and tested every single thing. Well, and that's, so that's one weird. of the questions is like how much um, with a background in criminology and being a, I mean, an actual student right. of crime, did he take precautions beforehand? He um, had to. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the roommates did see him, um, uh, walking out of the house, um, but he did not see her. And, you know, there's some speculation that this visual snow, um, uh, condition might've impaired his side vision. Right. Uh, it's also possible that he was in such an adre adrenaline state that he was just rushing to get out of there. She opens the door. It's dark. He's, you know, he's frantic. He's trying to get out of there that, she sees him, but he doesn't see her because uh, on the police report, um, the one roommate talks about um, seeing somebody with bushy eyebrows. 
So she saw his face, um, but it's dark and he's wearing a hood or he's wearing a hat, you know, he's wearing something. And she doesn't um, know what just happened. Right, right. Um, you know, the, now the odd thing about her response and the other roommate's response is this all happens around four o'clock in the morning. The police are not alerted until about noon, 1230 in the, uh, later that day. So it's about eight hours go. And even once they find the bodies, the girls, um, it, it doesn't appear that they immediately called the police, which, of course, throws the social media and the conspiracy theorists into a frenzy. Like, again, we, we on the Idaho massacre, we talked to people, uh, not only criminologists, but psychologists about what are the natural responses and like fear, flight, um, uh, frozenness. Those are all natural parts of, you know, anybody's reaction to a horrific event. Um, so we just don't know what the two surviving roommates were going through mentally, physically. We also don't know where like they drunk in the middle of the night, were they high in the middle of the night? Um, what state they were in, in terms of their ability to process, cause they heard noises and things like that, but, but they didn't call the police. Um, and you, but we just don't know, you know, it was a Saturday night. I mean, I, I'm not saying they were drunk or high, but like it's very possible college students on a Saturday night are drunk and high and that they're hearing noises, they're freaking out or they, they, they freeze and they just can't process anything. Um, they can go, they go ca- uh, catatonic. Well, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this, this is a trial that is um very much in the early stages you know we don't have a trial date we're still in the preliminary hearing stages we have rulings on dna uh we'll have a couple other hearings on um cameras and a bunch of other stuff so there's we have a lot of steps before we get to an actual trial let alone a conviction or an acquittal are your pot is so you did this in in several um episodes right yeah, it's, uh, I, I believe there's 10 core episodes um, where we look at all different aspects of the, the investigation so far. There's two bonus episodes, which are a little bit of, you know, inside baseball background stuff that uh, iHeart likes us to do um, about sort of how we produce it and, you know, talking to some other people as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's 10 episodes. It's pretty in-depth. I mean, we anyone who follows the case knows there is a ton of speculation. There is a ton of conspiracy. We, we try to focus only on what we know for a fact. Um, and then what, if, if there were questions, we try to bring in people who are, you know, legitimate um, defense attorneys or lawyers or prosecutors or even criminologists. So, you know, I think, I hope people will find it very factual. Um, there are other podcasts where people go off on crazy tangents. Nothing wrong with that. Like that's a part of what people like on, on podcasts. But I think we tried to focus very much on, or right, what do we know and how does it fit with what we don't know? Has it already, is it already released? Or yeah, I believe it? we're episode seven or eight. It comes out every Wednesday. Okay, um, so you're still releasing them. Yeah, yeah, still cool. releasing. I think we've got two more episodes um, that are left to come out. So if you haven't listened, you know, I would, uh, uh, you know, point you in that direction. It can be found anywhere yeah. where we'll you find um, podcasts. Well, we'll put the links in the in the description box. And then when I end the podcast, I'll mention it. I'll, I'll say it again. Um, and it's um, it's part of the same series. There's another um, series called The Piketon Massacre, um, which is about a very grisly uh, murder of eight people in Ida- um, uh, the state of uh, Ohio. God, when was it? 2018, something like that. Um, it was one of the biggest murder investigations in the country, but it was also the biggest in um, Ohio's history as well. 
and and that was the studio that I worked for, K2 Studios. They did several seasons um, about that family, uh, the Wagner family. Essentially, um, they killed their cousins over custody of a baby, um, which is what the Pike to Massacre is all about. Um, so this is a continuation of that studio's um, investigation into these sort of grisly murders and and things like that. Very factual, very much dealing with people who knew the victims, who knew the um, suspects and things like that. What What's the other? Uh, aren't you? Are you working on another one? Another? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, you know, I, we we sort of have a steady stream of things that are coming out. Um, there's are, there's are kind of, these current? Are these all the same season? Or are these different seasons? Different series and different seasons. Um, So the Idaho Massacre is part of the Piketon Massacre series. This is, uh, I think, the fifth season of that. But it's instead of focusing on Piketon, it's focusing on Idaho. Uh, I also worked on another one with the same group for iHeart and KT Studios called Death Island, which uh, there's this island in Thailand called Koh Tao. And it's, um, it's a beautiful... Uh, sort of island paradise. It's off uh, in the Gulf of uh, Thailand. It's really far out there. Fantastic scuba diving. Um, it's near Copenhagen and um, Koh Samui, the sort of party islands, you know, where people go for just to let loose. But Koh Tao is just a little, um, uh, uh, you know, about a half a day ferry ride where you go there to scuba dive. You go there to sort of relax. But it's run by a couple families because it's a really small island who have sort of a a notorious background. And and there was a really grisly murder of two British backpackers um, named uh, David Miller and Hannah Witheridge, in which the the Thai government first comes in, the investigators, these two British backpackers get killed. um, Killed how? Like with a garden hoe, essentially. I mean, on the beach, on the main party beach, middle of the night, they get um, brutally beaten with... At least a garden hoe, probably several other things as well. A garden um, hoe. I thought she said a garden hose. Oh, was, no, no. I, garden was for, I was like, what? How, how does that happen? Um, there's also other distinct punctures that look like they come from a shark's tooth knife, which are like a, a punch knife. Um, right. And, you know, at first, the, the Thai government and Thai investigators point the finger at the family who rule the island. Um, the, their name is the Tavichian family. And, they basically say the first the lead investigator within a couple of days says, yeah, it was these guys. Um, the two um, kids were seen partying at their bar. They've got sort of a dodgy reputation. They really run the island um, with an iron fist. And then um, on a dime overnight, uh, Thai investigators basically say, no, it wasn't them. They arrest two Burmese uh, migrant workers who were working on the island who were in the area, but don't really appear to have had the physical ability to kill this British male backpacker and the female that he was with. Um, but they convict these two Burmese um, uh, migrant workers for the murder of Hannah Witheridge and David Miller. They're now sentenced to life in prison uh, in Thailand. And the main suspects who Thai police originally pointed the finger at um, are free walking around on the island. And, that's just one of about 20 or so deaths on that island in the last 20 years. So um, that are all are the other ones solved or unsolved? Um, mostly unsolved. Some of them and are not, accidents. Not that I not that I see the the Thai um, police making sure that they get the right, right. guy, but right. 
so mostly unsolved. Um, there's uh, one of the deaths was labeled a suicide. However, um, she was found hanging in uh, in the woods in the, in the jungle of this island, um, and uh, she's the, the the way they found her is because there's gigantic lizards that are going up and uh, eating her body, basically. And she was running away from a cult um, that she had been a part of on another island, uh, and she was on her way home. Um, and her luggage gets left on the boat, uh, on the ferry. Her previous bungalow burns down on Kotal, uh, and the Thai police just rule this a suicide. Um, and so you have this, this island where there's been legitimate murders, um, where it appears that people are being framed for those true, like legitimate murders. Then you have a whole rash of unexplained deaths. Um, or, you know, accidents that aren't fully investigated. Uh, and this has been going on for 20 years, basically. And the, one of the most recent deaths on the island happened during COVID when a husband and wife were swimming in a pool on Kotal, and they both died. Uh, police blamed it on his hypertension and diabetes. Now, how you get two deaths. I was going to say, and, and how the wife die. That's a great question. Um, how you get two deaths in uh, a swimming pool in, on Koh Tao that has a long history of, uh, you know, just unexplainable deaths. How you get two deaths out of hypertension and diabetes, I don't, I don't get it. Um, but that's, that was the official ruling. Two people died, blamed it on his hypertension and um, diabetes. A diabetes. Now, my personal feeling is probably the pool was electrified and they probably got electrocuted in the pool, but because the Thai police don't want to hold any Thai owners accountable for anything, nor do they want to um, uh, do real investigations on the island for fear of where it might lead. They just blamed it on uh, an accident and, and said it was his, you know, <laughs> diabetes. So well, the, uh, death Island is all about this Island that has this long 20 year history of crazy deaths um, about how the Thai police have bungled at least one investigation, probably bungled a whole bunch more. And then there's a whole bunch of other deaths where family and friends are like, yeah, this guy didn't die or this woman didn't die naturally. There's more to this story. Um, so we look at this entire small little party, beautiful island paradise, um, which has become pretty notorious around the world for its never-ending string of crazy deaths. Is that are those episodes out? Yeah, that's fully out. That came out about a year ago. Um, and again, that's part of iHeart and KT Studios. And you know, KT, uh, who I work with uh, a lot, um, I, I work on other projects as well. But you know, they they've become really one of iHeart's go to um, production companies for uh, true crime stuff. Um, and, and they've got a bunch more coming out. I don't know if you ever saw the documentary "Don't F with Cats" on Netflix. So listen, I didn't, I, I, I actually didn't see it, but I don't, I don't feel I have to see it because I have a buddy um, who saw it and literally talked about it for an hour. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so I almost feel like I don't need to see it. I can tell you all about how they figured out where the cat, where these people yep. were, where these guys, they use satellites, they used, you know, imagery, they yep. used like, he loved that video. So we have a uh, podcast coming out with two of the subjects of that documentary, two of the people who helped find the killer in that documentary, um, uh, Deanna and John, they are, uh, we have a new podcast coming out with them in two weeks called true crimes with John and Deanna. And, um, 
basically they they work two cases. Um, one's a cold case and one's an active case uh, that's in the news. Um, and the the season that's coming out, I think it's um, second week in October. It's true crimes uh, that will be out on iHeart as well that I worked on, and it's basically following them as they work on these cold cases and uh, on this one uh, other active case as well, and trying to sort of apply the the dark web, the the internet sleuthing techniques that they use um, to help investigators. Um, the production company that did that was that um, Sandpaper. The the, the the doc, the, Netflix the document, doc. Uh, yeah, the uh, um, don't fuck with cats. I think so. I think that's the name I remember. So we're, it's KT Studios is doing the podcast, um, but I think it was uh, Sam Paper that did the um, the original document or uh, documentary. Yeah, because I I had a, a thing. They did a, a sizzle reel for my story. Oh, interesting. It. Okay, yeah. didn't yeah, go yeah. anywhere. <laughs> um, but it you was know nice what? Of them Everything doesn't go anywhere until it does. Don't ever give up. I, I, uh, I, that's I, Hollywood. I, Listen, I, I've realized that it, you know, you get there. Nobody ever says no. It, it's, it's really just, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, yeah. we got to talk to, we're so excited, really looking forward to this is got to talk to Bob. Oh, Bob's really, he's into it. When, when the, we're going to talk about it in the meeting next week, uh, we're going to talk to, we got to so-and-so's on vacation. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, so three months later, you're like, I'm starting to feel like maybe this isn't going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, so Death Island, the podcast we did about this island in, in uh, Thailand, it right. started off as a TV show. Um, it had been purchased. It had been sold. Uh, we did a sizzle reel, similar experience. Um, people were all enthusiastic. And then six months later, it was like, oh, yeah, this is not going anywhere. Um, so mm-hmm. we brought it back as a podcast. And, um, you know, we did the research. Um, you know, I, I, we always have hope that these things will become, um, you know, either – a documentary or a serial, um, you know, multi-episode program. Um, But, you know, the nice thing about the podcast industry is you can do really quality work uh, and get it out to a lot of people without having to go through all of these executives and and production companies and stuff like that. And I think it's part of the reason why podcasts are so successful right now is that it's the barrier to entry, the barrier to producing quality work is so much lower. Well, I, you know, the, Let's face it, it. It's also timing. Like yeah. there's sometimes where like there'll be three years where they'll they'll like they're all into this type of uh, yeah. uh, this type of true crime or this type of documentary, and then it cools off. And then three years later, it's 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 for three years you're pitching the same stuff that they were <laughs> begging you for. Now yeah. I'm pitching you that, and they're like, "Yeah, we're not interested in that anymore." Yep. But then three years later, they come back and they're like, "Hey, remember that thing you told us about three years ago?" And you're like, "Well, yep. you weren't interested in that." So. Yeah, it's it's you know, and it's, it's fickle, and the same people that are there, you know, that you pitched to six months ago, they're they're not even there anymore. Right. I mean, you often find it's like the number three person at a company that you pitch something to is then calling you back three years later to say, "I remember this. Like, what what do we think about doing this?" Because the two people ahead of them have been fired or moved on, and yeah. now they're in a different position and they've moved up. Yeah, it's an it's it's an interesting um, process. I, I come from a background in news and journalism. Right. where you're always pitching stories to your bosses, but there's an expectation that each day or at least each week you're going to turn some story. And so, you know, your bosses sort of have to take your pitches. Um, you know, you're employed by a company, they need the content. And so you pitch a story or you pitch a project and, you know, within a couple of days you have an answer and you go and do it. Whereas like 
trying to get these true crime or other projects made through the production studios and Hollywood, it's just a much longer process. And, and you don't ever get a no, but you also don't always get a yes. It's horrible. I, I was, I, I'd rather deal with criminals. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're very quick to tell you yes or no. Exactly. You know, they make and, decisions, right? Right. Um, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. And I've had, and I'm sure you've had the same thing. Like I've had multiple projects where I've, somebody's come to me and talked to, you know, the production producer with a company's talked to me and I've said, Oh yeah, well here's, well, I have something kind of like that. I've got this project and they're like, Oh wow. Okay. That's super cool. And let me see Do you have it written up? Yeah. Yeah. It's on my website and they read it and they come out. They go, it's exactly what we're looking for. Right. And how, what do you want for it? And I want this and okay, great. Can we talk to the subject? Sure. No problem. I'll put you in contact with them. And then they stop returning your phone calls. And then six months later, somebody calls up and says, wow, man, I saw your thing on vice. And you go, what? Yeah. The story. Remember the story? You re- No, no, no. I did a pitch that device, but they didn't do anything with it. Well, and then it you go and look and they did. Well, that's particular. Um, that reputation is, is a very specific device as well. I yeah. mean, I, um, I've worked as a freelancer. I've worked for different media companies and, and stuff like that. And you know, that was a, that was a reputation that vice had for a lot of years. And it doesn't surprise me that the executives are walking away with hundreds of millions of dollars in their pockets. Um, while, the people who work there are getting screwed and vice is blown up in the last couple of years, you know, and like, you know, it's basically a bankrupt entity at this point um, because they did that. They did that shit all yeah. the time. Well, you know, it's funny too, is that, so, <laughs> you know, on the flip side, like I, I was like a, an expert one time that they had me come like, you know, they, they had a, you know, they don't fly a crew and they, they hire a local crew yeah. and they rented an Airbnb and brought me in and brought me in for, like I was there like three hours and they paid me like $3,500 for like three hours. And I mean, I've got, I'm on film all of two minutes <laughs> for three. And they, and I was like, this is, this is great. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, eventually they, they eventually did pay me, not what I, had, we discussed, but they did only because, uh, you know, only because I, I, you know, started making waves and arg and yelling and did a couple podcasts and they were like, listen, can we just, quash this right, right. So, but most people don't have that they don't have that luxury like they don't yeah. have a platform they don't have um but yeah it's 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 a cutthroat business um, how and you got into this because you were in i know i went on your website and like when i was looking into you and there's there were all the so i know you were like an embedded reporter right is that what they call it yeah i i, I mean i i did some local news before I, I i in 2009 i moved to afghanistan so it's the height of the financial crisis it's the you, height you of moved to afghanistan for I what did, yeah. what reason just because. um i knew that there was going to be a huge buildup of troops and that the iraq war was sort of being wrapped up if you remember 2008 the entire election was mccain is a hawk obama's a dove iraq 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 right well yeah. i was having drinks with a friend of mine who was a captain in the marine corps that summer and he goes, Iraq is done. Like whatever happens in Iraq, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. We're done. We are preparing to send 100,000 American troops to Afghanistan in 2009. And like that kind of blew my mind. I was like, really? Like you don't barely – like nobody's talking about this. Right. Um, and I was a point in my career where I really wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I really wanted to cover foreign news and, and um, you know, to go cover war basically. And so in February, March of 2009 – um, I 
sort of um, misled the Afghan government to get an Afghan visa. I moved to Afghanistan um, and I ultimately got hired by Fox uh, to be their Afghan correspondent um, and was there for four years for Fox covering the war there. Um, after f- four years of going on embeds with U.S. military troops, with Afghan troops, with British troops, um, and covering the war there, I moved to Jerusalem and was in Jerusalem for six years, um, you know, and covered sort of a little of everything from Libya, uh, the war there, to Syria, um, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in Gaza and places like that. So, yeah, I, 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 I most work on true crime stuff today. Uh, but my background in terms of my longer professional career was very much wars, conflicts, um, problematic political situations around the world. But I'm okay. You did that for how long? So I was at Fox for 10 years. Um, and then I've been, I freelance with CNN on and off for the last four years. And I was in Ukraine and I did a lot of the um, Black Lives Matter protests in the United States in 2020 and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I still do some of it, um, but, but you know, the bulk of it was about 10 years overseas. So how long have you done just, have you been doing podcasts? I did my first one in 2018, 2019 was when I first started. And, and that one was a political history one um, about presidential losers. Um, it had no true crime connection. It was just interesting. It was like um, it, it came out during the pandemic. So, it you know, nobody was listening to podcasts, unfortunately, during there, that period of time. But it was a political history one. And it was something that I did with a friend just because I wanted to try to like, how do you tell stories with podcasts? Right. Um, you know, it was a very different medium. It was a, it was a ton of fun. Uh, you know, really proud. It was called Long Shots, a political history podcast, and um, yeah, that sort of opened the door to working on a whole bunch of other podcasts. A lot of true crime, but I've worked on some other stuff as well. Did you cover Ross Perot? We did, yeah. So we did eight episodes. We did Ross Perot, Pat Buchanan. Um, we did Eugene Debs, who got a million votes while in jail in 1920. I don't even know um, who that is. Yeah. So he was a socialist candidate. Um, you know, so if you think about 2020, that period of time, you had uh, Trump supporters saying, lock her up, lock her up, you know, for Hillary Clinton. And Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic president in the sort of 1912, 1916, actually did charge Eugene Debs, who was the socialist candidate, which at that time was a major political party in the United States, um, with, uh, you know, essentially treason because he was against World War I. Threw him in jail. Eugene Debs ran for president for the fourth time, I think it was, and got over a million votes um, in 1920 as a presidential candidate. Uh, so he's a fascinating story. I mean, it really is like if, if you like presidential political history, um, Eugene Debs was a fascinating guy, but is even more fascinating in the context that a president literally, his Justice Department literally did arrest and charge a presidential candidate of a major party in the country with treason, chucked him in jail, and the guy still got a million votes. Interesting. Yeah. So um, it was a cool thing. We talked to Ross Perot's uh, son-in-law. We talked to a bunch of the journalists who covered Ross Perot um, and just about their what that campaign meant to America today and like and w- how revolutionary it was in that period of time as well. So, yeah, I always liked that series because it was – it, it was just a lot of fun. It was political history. It wasn't, you know, there was nobody was getting killed. And, you know, it was just a different series. Uh, it wasn't sort of, it was dark and depressing, but it, for different reasons. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like I do most, I mean, most like almost 99.9% of all the true crime that I cover, you know, on my channel is like, nobody's, nobody dies. Right. You know what I'm saying? I've just basically do like credit card counterfeiters or right. scammers or Ponzi schemes or, um, you know, guys that sold drugs or, you know, that got that kind of right. stuff. So, uh, because I'm not, I don't, you know, the, the gory blood and guts is just, I just not, I'm not interested, you know, they, yeah, you know, I, don't, like 80, I don't have much of a stomach, <laughs> right. There's like 80, like 70 or 80% of the viewers for blood and guts are women. So there's a joke that I've heard a lot of people, it's not funny, but it's like white women love stories of white women being killed. Um, and like, if you look at the demographics of true crime podcast, if you think about Friday nights with 48 hours or Dateline NBC, uh, NBC, like those skew, I mean, it's like 70% women and that's right. who listens to true crime. And it does tend to be white women. Um, it, you know, it's not only white women, but it, women love stories about women being killed. Uh, and it's very sort of bizarre. Um, but yeah, it, if you're not doing the gory stuff, like I'd be willing to bet most of your viewers or listeners, right, are a lot of men who are interested in the scamming part stuff. 93% of my viewers are men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, definitely. I, and when I first started, it was like 98%. It's, yeah. it's gotten to be, I've gotten, my, my female demographic has, you know, quadrupled. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like 6% now. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Um, you know what you were going to say something? I just wanted to throw this in here, which I thought was interesting. Um, cause you had the Afghan thing. Um, do you remember, you know, the movie war dogs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the main character played by Ephraim, played by Jonah Hill yep. is Ephraim Devaroli. So I was incarcerated with Ephraim Devaroli. Oh, wow. And I wrote, I wrote his memoir. Interesting. It's called Once a Gun Runner. And, um, you know, much like the character that Jonah Hill played, uh, you know, scoundrel, like just a, a, a really, really unpleasant individual. And Jonah Hill made him seem soft and cuddly compared to the real <laughs> person. Uh, and he basically like when, when the short version is after I wrote the story and he left prison with the manuscript, right? Like I never heard from him again. Oh, like, really? <laughs> he, now he did. Now we had the same, uh, like I, I introduced him to my literary agent and he published okay. the book and it had my name on it. He never paid me. His literary, a literary agent, our, our, well, uh, he died and I ended up having to sue him. And I actually, what's so funny is that like I, from Devaroli's point of view, I wrote this book for him. He got it published. And our only real connection was our literary agent, which died. And yeah. I, my out date at that time was 2030. Wow. So he thought, I don't have to worry about that guy. <laughs> you know, of course, in the meantime, I got my sentence reduced twice by 12 years. So just before I got out of prison, which was only like a year or so after, like he published the book, I sued him, got out actually convinced a literary agent, not literary agent, sorry, an intellectual property attorney to take my case on pro bono, which is impossible by the yeah. way, and sued him. And we eventually settled. 
And we actually, part of our settlement was at a strip club. I mean, literally we, we go, we went to mediation. It went back and forth. Like I can't, what, what happened back and forth for like yeah. three hours. It didn't go anywhere. And then as I'm leaving, going back to driving from Miami back to Tampa, because I think, imagine this, I have to get permission from my probation right. officer just to go. And, and all the stuff that happened in between there, like, like when the public book got published, I didn't even know it had been published. Last I had heard was they were looking, they were negotiating with Simon and Schuster. And one day I'm in prison and one of my buddies walks up to me and he goes, Hey bro, you making any money off that thing? I go, what? He goes, Deb Rowley's book. And I go, no, nah, they haven't published it yet. He goes, what are you talking about? He opens up a magazine, a big glossy magazine. There's Dev Rowley with like 50 or 60 or like a hundred books behind him holding his book at the Miami book fair. Wow. And I'm like, what, 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 you know? Like that's what, what happened, you know, and I, he already had blown me off, right. but I was still talking to the literary agent. So anyway, I ended up when I was leaving Miami, um, to come back after our mediation fell apart, it, I got a phone call saying, Hey, meet us at, for my lawyer, meet us at the pink pony. Deborah and his <laughs> lawyer got to meet us here. They just called. Of course. He wants a deal. And I'm like, bro, what do you, I got like a four hour drive. It's already like six o'clock at night. Like, what, what are you doing? And, and I can't, I, my, I'm going to get thrown back in prison. Like I gotta be home tonight. I drove there and we argued and negotiated and, you know, so he ends up, we ended up settling, but it's such, it's so funny because how that whole thing happened is so comical. Uh, it's, I mean, I haven't read the book, um, but you know, the movie is a historic, like a hysterical sort of sequence of events. Yeah, that we don't is. even know about like your back end, which is like how the book gets made and how like that's a whole nother thing. Oh, I was gonna say part. Well, the you know it's funny. Not that I expect you to read it, but like I actually have like a a, a nine thousand word version. So I, I actually wrote a book on it. Wow. Um, it's called <laughs> "Dude, Where's My Hand Grenade?" Because it's funny <laughs> because and that that came about because when I had met Deborah Rowley in prison, I was like, I'd read the Rolling Stone article um, about he, he and David Packhouse. Yeah. And I said to him, and I, I, so I went and went to, he just like, I read it. And then like two weeks later, he showed up at the prison and I was already writing true crime stories. Right. Like I was already kind of wanted to start doing that. Cause I just finished my memoir was finishing right. it. And one of my buddies said, Hey, you know, that article I gave you about that gun guy. And I was like, right. He said, he's here you need to go talk to him. And I was like, why? And he, and he said, he goes, because he said, he's got a great story. And I was like, yeah, but he's got a lot of money. He could hire somebody. And yeah. so I went and I talked to him and said, Hey, my name's Matt. And I talked to him and said, you know, I don't know if you're thinking about doing a memoir. And he was like, man, I'm ADHD. I'm bipolar. He's like, I, there's no way I'm going to be, able, I, I can't, there's no way I could focus that long. I go, well, if you want any help, I'd be willing to help you write an outline. It's a great story. And I said, you could probably get a professional writer to write it on the, sh on the street. And he goes, well, he's, I'll think about it. And so as time went by, like two weeks later, I would be walking on the compound. We have something called controlled moves where they, they open like the unit, the housing right. unit where you sleep, they open it for like 10 minutes. So they open the doors and you have like 10 minutes to walk across the compound, which is roughly the size of maybe a, a, a city block or two to you. Know, so if you want to go to the rec yard, they open the doors every right. hour and they open the doors for 10 minutes. So you have to kind of race across the compound to get to the rec yard or to get to the library or to go to medical or the chow hall, whatever. So we would see each other constantly and we'd be passing. We'd 
pass right by each other. And I look up and see him and he go, I'm still thinking about it. And he, and I had to go, all right. And I just keep walking because he was really obnoxious. So one day I remember I was walking and he stopped me and he goes, Hey bro. And I I said, yeah, what's up? He said, you know, that the Rolling Stone article, keep in mind the Rolling Stone article that was written about him was called arms and the dudes. And it was written from David Packow's um, point of view. So the interview was with David Packow's. Okay. So as I'm walking by him, he goes, "You know the, you know, hey, you know the uh, that article." And I was like, "Right." He said, uh, "It got sold." He said, uh, uh, "Those guys, uh, Todd Phillips, uh, they picked it up." And I was like, "Okay." He said, "I go, who's that?" I said, "That he goes, the guys that make the Hangover movies." And I went, "He goes, yeah, they're gonna make a movie uh, about it." He said, pretty cool, right? And I went, wow, bro. I said, listen, I said, I, I, I'm, you seem like a smart guy. I said, but on, let's be honest. I said, have you watched those movies? And he goes, yeah. I said, right. Don't you have to, aren't you leaving here in a couple of years? He goes, yeah. And I said, aren't you going to go back into business? And he goes, yeah. And I went, do you understand these guys are going to make a movie about you where you're a joke? I said, you're going to be a punchline. I said, you're going to be Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Good point. And I said, I said, and they're going to name the movie, Dude, Where's My Hand Grenade? And you're going to be a punchline. I said, and you actually have an opportunity now to write an outline and get your version out there. I said, and you can't take a couple hours uh, a week to meet me to write an outline? I said, you, you were way ahead of this thing. Yeah. And he was like, you should, he was like, bro, when, when can we start? When can we start? Yeah, I bet the light bulb went off, right? Right. So, so then we wrote, I wrote the outline when I was done writing the outline, he'd read my book by that point. I'd given him my, he said, can I read your manuscript? I said, sure. So I gave it to him a couple of days later, he came back. He said, bro, I want you to write my book. That's awesome. And he goes, hey, can Sorry. I ask, how do you write a book in prison? Do you have access to a computer? Or are you doing it on a floppy drive? You have a, a like piece of paper? Slowly. Like, how are you doing it? slowly so listen here's here you don't have access to really you don't really have access so right you don't have access to the internet or anything what you have access to is it's called core links so it's a way to email your family but really you're sending an email to to a to like a website and then they can check the website to read yours and then they can write a letter or an email back to you and then you can check so there's no you're not really emailing them directly Right. There's a wall, basically. Yes. So what happens is they allow you to store drafts for like 60 days. So I can write a letter to you and it's only you only got like. Right. I want to say whatever, 1200 characters or I I forget what it was, 12,000 characters. So they fill up. So what I did was I wrote everything on a yellow legal stuff paper that I could buy at the commissary. I then typed it out and keep in mind, every time you you're on that system, it's charging you. So then I, I type it out into, (laughs) into a draft and I would save it. So it'd be like chapter one, a chapter two B or chapter one B chapter one C chapter two, a chapter. And I'd write it out. I'd print it out. I'd give it to people that I, that could read it for me and, you know, try and help me edit it, you know, clean it up. Cause there's no, there's no, um, word processing ability. It doesn't tell you that, Hey, you spelled, you spelled that word wrong. So these guys would read it and keep in mind, there's a lot of smart guys in, 
at Coleman. Like we, we had like, we had, I think we had two or three guys from NASA, you know I mean? These are, these are sharp yeah. individuals. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of morons too, so, <laughs> but they would read it and I'd edit it and print it out and re-edit it and print it out. And then eventually you just email all those things to, I would email them to my literary agent. He would put it together in a word document, mail it back to me. Wow. I'd edit it again. So it is a huge process. Yeah, that's, mind too, that, I had a ton of time though. I was going to say you have the time, but that's a lot of like that. You got to sit and do that. I, I, a lot of people have time and they don't use it. Well, I was going to say, but I, listen, my, my time. So for the first, I didn't start writing for about three years, but once I started writing, it just blew by the time. Yeah. Like I, I had, you know, I had purpose and, you know, you know, life is, you know, it's about having a purpose. So right. You really want to be happy. And, and that gave me a purpose where I was like, okay, I'm incarcerated. One, I should be incarcerated. I got myself here. Um, but what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to learn how to play the guitar. Right. I don't want to, I don't want to learn how to, you know, be a, a culinary, you know, a chef or what, you know, culinary arts or whatever. They, they had a couple programs. Like there wasn't a lot there that I, you know, I don't place, I don't want to be on the, the basketball team. I'm five foot six. It's embarrassing. Um, you know, so there's, there's just like, that's it. So what do you yeah. do? So I thought, what do I have a ton of, which is there's true crime stories everywhere. And, and, and these guys can't write their own stories. I'm not saying that they're not smart enough, but the truth is if it's difficult, it is easier for me to write a story about you than it is about me. Yeah, definitely. You, you, you know that you just don't see yeah. yourself how you, how you truly are, how other people yeah. see you. And that's difficult. So I started kind of after I wrote my story and then I wrote Deborah Rowley's and then I wrote, I wrote this, another kid's story. Got, I got him in Rolling Stone magazine. And, you know, so then it really got around, like it was spreading everywhere. So then every day people are coming to me saying, Hey bro, can I, I'd love to tell you my story. Do you have time? And I'd be like, well, I, I'll be at the library tomorrow. You come and talk to me. And so it was like every other day I'm getting people coming to me and I'm yeah. listening to their stories. And it's like, you know, like that's a good story, but it's pretty common. Right. You know, a lot, you have a lot of stories that are common. Like it's, you know, a lot of them are just almost tragic. Yeah. And so if they had something unique, then maybe I could, I would write like a synopsis on them. Um, and I ended up writing like 22 or 23 stories, synopses. And I probably wrote like, I think I wrote like four books while I was there, four or five books while I was incarcerated. And another couple that three that I turned into books when I got out Really, they were already kind of written. Right. I just, you know, I really just, it's like, it sounds so funny because as as my release date was getting closer, I was like, man, there's just not enough time. You know, <laughs> the guys are like, are you nuts? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I really like, I'm like, I'm not going to have enough time on the street to finish this. And they're like, you've got, you need to get your, you need to get your priorities straight. Yeah, up. exactly. Um, But yeah, so I, I, you know, I wrote those and, and. And I put them on, you know, I've got most of them on a website and I, they're on Amazon and I did all that. And I just actually turned that one dude, where's my hand grenade into a book only because, you know, so much of it was really kind of already written in a way. Right. Well, I wrote a whole, it, it sounds boring, but it's actually super interesting because, you know, most of it takes place in prison. It's like how this was done from in prison. Definitely. And, and I basically initially, I kind of 
tell a short version of how Deveroli's story and my story, while I was doing this, he was doing this, while I was doing this, he was doing that. And then how it kind of comes together. And, and really honestly about, it, it turned out that Deveroli and the literary agent really had me write that story to put themselves in a position to sue Warner brothers. Interesting. Like, and, and, yep. and I, and I, I knew that's, they, they talked about it. You know, I was just excited to be a part of writing this story, but, and they kept talking about suing for intellectual property if they make the movie. And I was like, yeah, but you don't really have a right to do that. Cause they're making the movie based on the article that was written in Rolling Stone magazine. Right. And that's, that's Packhouse's version. And so my literary agent had sued before for theft of intellectual property that they didn't really steal, but it was a competing project. And right. he's like, it's not all you have to, he's like alleging it is enough. You got to pay the piper though. You got it. You can't like, if it's competing projects still got to get paid. Right. So that's really what he did. He was like, you've got it. We got to get it out first. Yeah. We have to get this. You have to make sure you incorporate all of what's in the article so that do you see what I'm saying? He had this yeah. whole thing and it was like, and I was like, well, why are we talking about this? I thought we we're going to get a publishing deal. He's like, yeah, but just in case. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well I'm not concerned about that. So eventually I find out that that was all they ever really cared about putting the, and, and they did, he sued Warner brothers when he got out and he got a payday and you know, and then, but then he all still didn't pay me. Like you still didn't pay me. Cause he still, you know, and then suddenly i get out and I've hired yeah. an attorney or I'm, I'm suing him. And, um, but yeah, it's, it was interesting how the whole thing, you know, the literary agent l literally died the night that Warner Brothers, they went to mediation and they made a deal. Wow. And he died that night. I mean, there's a dark comedy there if you uh, want to pursue that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, everybody that has read it has just been like, this is in, like, yeah, this is over. But one thing after another that happened in that whole um, and, and everybody involved in, in it is is uh, a character. You meet yeah. some real characters in prison. I, I you know, I think <laughs> characters are what drive stories more than plots. And, the, and, and, you know, prison is a great place. If you look at how many just crime stories come out of like prison time and stuff like that, there's so many good characters because you can't end up in that place without doing some unnormal odd behavior right and oh yeah. That's, yeah that's what makes for a great character well that's what i would say about like like narcissists and pe people get so upset about you know this company is run by a, a he's a psychopath or he's a narcissist or he's a, i'm like yeah i i get it but normal people don't reach that right. pinnacle because they don't make those leaps they're not they can't act super confident and be super right. confident because they have a natural ability to be cautious and not over promise right. and not so you know those people either end up highly successful or incarcerated yeah exactly yeah so um you know either they end up become president or <laughs> they, uh but yeah you I, i'm gonna look i'll i'll shoot you i have a short version i have like an eight thousand word version i mean i'm not that i expect you to read it but i'm gonna shoot it to you just in case no i'd love to i'd love to i'd love to check it out um but yeah, if you're if you're ever in, if you're ever lacking in ideas, like I got like twenty something stories that would be, make great podcasts. We'll talk more. I've got some people who I do other projects with that are always looking for ideas, and I'm always happy to bring them stuff. So cool. Yeah, definitely.
I mean, as you know, like finding an interesting stories, you, you never know what's going to work on any given moment, but the more interesting stories that you are working on, the better chance you have of getting something made. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and like, well, you're just like, like you were saying, you know, it's fun. Yeah. Like the fact that I'm making a living doing YouTube is just, just, me. <laughs> I, I think man. it's fantastic. Listen, I was just at a big podcast conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in Denver. Um, and the big thing is podcasters trying to move into YouTube. And, you know, what I said when I was talking to people, I said, I think it's way easier if you're already doing YouTube to move into podcasting than it is the other direction. I said, because a lot of people who are doing podcasting aren't thinking about your screen. They're not thinking about the lighting. They're not thinking about your backdrop. They're not thinking about the way you carry yourself on screen and, um, you know, your movements and all these things. But like, if you're doing YouTube, all you're worrying about, you, you've already done all that stuff, right? Like, right. So it's way easier to go from YouTube to podcasting than podcasting to YouTube because um, you've already done everything, um, uh, you know, the, the hard parts, I think, in terms of the setup and the lighting and, and the microphone. But it's a, it's a big thing right now. So if you're doing it, you're way ahead of the game because you, you can chop it up two different directions, whereas most podcasters aren't thinking about video yet, but they want to try to think about video. Um, right. And, you know, their minds aren't there. And a lot of them are just audio people. Well, it's funny, too, because typically, un unlike you, who you actually know what you're doing, would typically you'd be shocked how many times I I get someone on on a, a remote podcast and I'm like, can you move over? Can you yeah. push the camera closer to you? OK, lower yourself. But, you know, you started off in exactly this one spot. Yeah. I'm like, oh. He's good. You know, no, I mean, I, you know, one, I I've worked in TV, I work in TV production, you right. know, I, I have a sense of it anyways, but I, I, I will tell you, um, the pandemic improved that a whole lot because I did my first podcast, um, long shots before the pandemic hit. It came out during the pandemic. We did all the interviews and a lot of our, uh, people I was interviewing were older reporters or political campaign consultants, you know, worked on Ross pro or Jesse Jackson, stuff like that. And trying to get them to set up a microphone and press record and, you know, to do this, right? Right. So impossible. I mean, I literally spent hours with people before we got to interviews trying to get them to set it up. Post-pandemic, not everybody, but everyone has a better sense. And most people now have a, a good sense of like, okay, I need a little bit of light. I need a microphone. You know, oh, I just need to click this button. I also need to check my audio levels. The pandemic did make this type of thing way easier because grandmas and grandpas and businessmen who never did this they've been forced to interact with these types of platforms and microphones right um, so it is better than it used to be at least from the things i do um but i you know just even a couple of years ago i'd be interviewing people and like you know background would be a mess or you know the people would be like doing dishes in the background i'm like no, can we just have a little quiet right what <laughs> I'm staring at some guy's bed with a, a mound of uh, a yeah. mound of dirty clothes on yeah. it. It's like, what are you thinking? Like, I know you can see yourself. Yeah, yeah. But they don't so, even think that that's not really the the picture they want to put out to the world. Yeah. All right. <laughs> what? What? Uh, it, can you think of anything we didn't cover? Or no, I think we we covered a lot. I mean, yeah. Anything you want to cover? Anything additional? No, or? no, no. I think it's fantastic. I enjoyed it. I hope you. I hope it. Uh, is what you were looking for. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is. And, and and I'll put, you know, we'll put the, if you send me the link to yeah. the podcast, then I'll, I'll do that. Uh, I mean, yeah, we'll put fantastic. That in, uh, 
Um, I, I work on a ton of projects as well. It's good to have connected with you because, um, you know, I, I don't know ever what's going to come up, but um, I'll definitely keep you in mind for other projects. You know, if we need interviews, um, you know, for things like that as well. So, yeah, definitely. I, I appreciate it. Hey, if you if you like the interview, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Leave me a comment and I'm going to try and be more interactive in the comment section because I've been slipping. But I'm working on it. The description box for Connor's uh, links to his podcast. And I really appreciate you guys watching. Thank you very much. And please consider joining my Patreon. See ya.